Thank you. I want to invite you to take the Bible that you have or the device that you can bring up your Bible and return to a great book here as we're working through the Gospel of John. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week in John chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I'll offer just a couple of brief updates. Um, Many of you have been able to reach out to Pastor Jim this week, and he's on the mend. He was home on Monday, and I think is just um, getting better throughout throughout the week. And thank you for so many of you that have reached out, or contacted, or brought meals. I think if you still have a desire to bring a meal, we're, we're, we're routing that through Michelle Germain. Remember, there's a special diet that he is on, so you can uh, contact her to find out more about that diet. And Melody and I had an opportunity to take in some of that weekend. Remember, this past weekend, we drove through something that I learned was called a squall on, on Friday. I hadn't heard of that before, but I certainly know what it is now, uh, having driven through that. And uh, how affirming that was to, to see a room full of couples uh, sitting underneath just solid biblical teaching about God's design for marriage and, and to see uh, people from our own church there as well. That was such a great blessing. And I want to add my invitation to what Roman said about the men's breakfast. I personally do not need another event that would pull me away from my boys. So what I do is I bring my boys, my youth age boys that are sixth grade and up, and I bring them to that. Uh, I want them to be hanging around you. Well, most of you, anyway, uh, uh, men's <laughs> breakfast. And so this gives them an opportunity to, to hang out with them as well. So that's another option. And it, you, can, you can have a, a free breakfast where you get around some, some real good truths and seeing some men flesh that out. So please make that a priority this coming Saturday. I'm telling you, I am standing before you today and looking at John chapter 6, and I can be certain to you that I, you are going to hear a very powerful sermon today one that is filled with spirit and life. And here is why. Because all I'm going to be doing is reading Jesus' sermon that he preached. Because what we have here in the last two-thirds of John chapter 6 is a sermon that Jesus preached. Now, any sort of sermon, I think, can be broken up into a couple of different headings. You're going to have an introduction. You're going to have the body or the main idea an illustration, and then the response to that sermon. So that's kind of the handles that I'm giving to you today for you to follow along with me as we look at this big chunk of Scripture together. Let's look here at the background that goes into this message. Picking up where we left off last week, I'm reading in verse 22, where it says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, in the first 15 verses of John 6, we read this wonderful story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men or 15 to 20,000 people with just two pieces of fish and, and five loaves of bread. And then after that, we read that same day in the evening, Jesus walks on water. And so when we read here on the next day, we see in verse 22, just understand it's the following day. Verse 23 again says, 
Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, probably an appropriate response and one that I would have offered would have been something like, well, after my evening stroll, after I went for a brief little walk last night on the Sea of Galilee, then then I have arrived. But what we see here is a demonstration and an example of Jesus' meekness, that he does not see it necessary to broadcast all of his accomplishments. In fact, he doesn't offer it at all. It was a story that was preserved between him and his 12 disciples. So it says here next, in verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your own fill of the loaves. So let me offer first the introduction. Oftentimes, when I was in training to learn how to preach a sermon, or when I've gone to a conference and and taken a workshop, or when I've read a book on this, I have been told that you really need to give a lot of thought and prayer to your introduction. Because most people within the congregation are going to determine within the first 30 seconds whether they're going to listen to the rest of the message or not. So give it some thought. So you might consider uh, some words of pleasantry. It's an honor to be with you today. I'm excited about what the Lord has put on my heart to share. You might offer something lighthearted like a well-timed joke or, or an engaging illustration that will serve as a hook for the hearers to come alongside and say, I want to listen to the rest of this. But Jesus offers the sledgehammer approach. And that is, let me tell you why most of you are here today. You are not here to hear truth. You're not here to seek eternal life. You are here because yesterday you got your bellies filled and you're hoping to have some more felt needs met today. That's why you're here. And so I've um, summarized it this way. You have come not to hear truth or to receive eternal life, but to find relief for your temporary needs. One commentator, Leon Morris, said it this way. They were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. And Jesus is saying to them, you have come because you have some sort of a crisis in your life. And you are hoping that I would ease the pain of that comfort, that crisis. But once it is lifted, then what you want to do is return right back into your sinful life. So let's just be really clear that the vast majority of the people in this congregation to receive this sermon in John chapter 6 are not there seeking truth or seeking life. They're just seeking temporary relief from a crisis that is in their life. Imagine Roman or, or Zach or myself getting up during the first, after the first set of songs and, and saying to you, I'm not sure why you're even here today. The God is laid out for you, the Word of God, but most of you haven't even read it this week. God has given to you the, the privilege of prayer, and you haven't even been praying to Him. Your life has been filled with sin all week, and you come in here, and you're pretending like you're following Jesus. It'd be better for you just to have repented and, and not even shown up today. Now, how would that go over 
for an introduction to a sermon. (laughs) It's little wonder that by the end of this sermon, Jesus has cleared out pretty much the whole congregation as well as the membership role. So the introduction is this. I've come down. You've come to hear truth, not to hear truth or receive life, but to find relief for your temporary needs. As we look here at the next verse in verse 27, it says, Do not work for the food that perishes. He is saying to these people that have come, and they have come to have their temporary needs met, you are wasting your life. You are investing it in things that will not matter for eternity. I come across the story of a playwriter, a famous novelist that would write short stories by the name of William Somerset Magum. In the 1930s, he was among the most famous playwrights and authors that there were. And as a result, he was insanely wealthy. In his, the 1960s, there was about 300 letters being sent to him every day offering words of encouragement. He was receiving vast amounts of royalties that were coming in. One day in 1965, his young little nephew named Robin went to sit down with him and that conversation led to an article in a news, uh, newsletter, or rather a magazine. And this is what that Robin, the young nephew, said. He said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to require. I remembered the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows. A fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean were worth millions of dollars. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates, was waited on by Marius as butler and Henry as footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that's the text that used to hang out opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung down onto the sofa. Oh, Robin, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hand. I've been a failure but the whole way through my life, he said. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. Now I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. Oh, I wish I'd never written a single word, he said. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's gotten to know me has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure, and now it's too late to change. It's too late. Willie looked up, and as he gripped, tightened on my hands, I was staring down, he was staring down towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear, and he trembled violently. 
Willie's face was ashen as he stared in the horror ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek, Go away, he cried. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. I tell you. His high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around, but the room was empty as before. There's no one there, Willie. Willie began to gasp hysterically. Here was a man that had been living for food that would spoil. I've been at Highland Crest long enough to see people in different stages of their life, visit them in their homes with exquisite furniture, beautiful rooms filled with just wonderful things, and then to see them in the next stage where they go from there to an assisted living place where they have just a fraction of what they once had, and then to see them in a nursing home where really the only thing that they have is a few photos of their family. And what Jesus is saying to the original congregation is he is saying to us today, do not work for the food that perishes. So there you have it in the introduction. Now what is the main point? What is the main body of this passage? I can think of times where I've received some instruction on preaching a sermon or or teaching a lesson, and I would hear something called the 3 a.m. idea. Do you know what that is? And that is that every teacher or every preacher ought to be able to be woken up by their spouse at 3 a.m. and say, hey, what is the sermon on tomorrow? Or what is the lesson on tomorrow? And you ought to be able to come up in one sentence with the main idea of that. And if you can't, then you're not ready to teach that lesson. Well, what is the one main idea that Jesus is driving home in this sermon? Here's what I think it is. I have come down from heaven to give life, eternal life, to all who believe in me. I have come down from heaven to give eternal life to all who believe in me. So let's look at the next part of this passage. Verse 27 again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man who will give, I've got the word give circled, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. And when they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What are they supposed to do? Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This passage, this sermon, will ebb and flow and come back and become repetitious. The word belief is offered seven different times. The phrase come down from heaven is offered seven different times as well. And this is the responsibility of those who are hearing Jesus during this sermon, is to believe in him, to seek truth that they may have eternal life. We see it picked up again in verse 36 and following, where Jesus said, But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, believes in Him, should should have eternal life. 
and will raise him up on the last day. Look with me at verse 44 to 47. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And in these verses, you have really the two pillars of how one is made right with God. On one side, you have God's work, God's responsibility. We call that election. We call that predestination. We call it God choosing whom will receive the gift of life. And we see it there in verse 37, all that the Father has given me. We see it also there in verse 39, that should I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised up on the last day. We also see it in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Maybe you would think that that word draw is referring to wooing or alluring, But that word can also be used in Greek. It's used in the book of Acts, a couple of different places, to refer to one being dragged away. So we see one pillar of how one is made right with God is God's responsibility of what God does. But we also see another pillar, don't we? And it's man's responsibility. And that is this gospel has been laid out that we don't need to remain in our sin or under the wrath of God or go to hell to, to answer for our sins, but Jesus has come to die in our place. And the invitation has been extended to you, to all, that if they will believe in what Jesus has done, they may experience eternal life. Imagine you have it on your heart to prepare an exquisite meal for some people that you really love and appreciate. And so you get together with your family and say, on this particular Friday evening, we're going to have this person over or these people over. And you spare no expense. In fact, you even get some paint and you paint your room. You shampoo the carpets. As you look at your cookware or your, your, your silverware and your cups and your plates, you realize you need to upgrade. So you upgrade some silverware. And when it comes to choosing the entree, you go to Maplewood Meats and you you choose the select cuts of meat. You go to the farmer's market and you get the freshest of vegetables and you prepare the best meal you are capable of. And as you sit with your friend that evening, it is magnificent. Everything has turned out how you would have dreamed. Not only is the food good, but the conversation is rich. And then the cheesecake is brought out. And it's heavenly. And as your meal is winding down, this friend who you sought to honor and express love and kindness to does something entirely unexpected. They reach into their wallet and say, Here, here's a little money towards all of your trouble. And they put a dollar bill on the table. What would that be like for you? Is there anyone here that would be offended by that? You would have said, all I want to do was just give this to you. And this is what the, a picture of what the gospel is. 
We cannot contribute anything to it out of great love for you. God has presented a gift to you that if you would come and believe that Jesus has saved you from your sins, you could dine with him. You could receive this gift. So we see these two pillars of God's responsibility, of man's responsibility, and like a, a suspension bridge, they are holding up this great teaching. We call it salvation of how one is made right with God. So that's the body. That's the main point. But doesn't every great sermon have an illustration as well? And so let's consider the illustration. And for that, let's look at verse 30 and following. As he is talking with them, he's, he's come out swinging with this illustration that you're not even here for the right motives. He tells them what they need to do is stop working for food that will spoil. And then in verse 30 it says, They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, yesterday evening, our family was sitting around with our Bibles reading this in preparation for today, and there's no reason you could do the same. You'll know where we'll be next Sunday morning. One of the boys said, what? What sign? These were the same people that were just yesterday present to receive bread and fish, and it fed 15, 18, 20,000 people. What, what do you mean, What sign? And I said to them, my boy, I said, that's exactly what you ought to feel when you read this. They're not really looking for a sign. They're, they're looking for one that will help them with their little crisis so they can go right back to their sin. <laughs> Amen. And verse 31 says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, those of you who know the Old Testament, you know this story. Exodus chapter 16, God has led the Israelites out. There's over a million of them now. There's no grocery stores or restaurants, and God's going to have to provide for them. So how does he do it? Every morning he provides manna, these little white pieces of bread, crackers. They're, they're out there. They are to go out and gather them, and they're to eat them. This is how he provides for them. And it's as if the people there that day said, listen, Moses went out, and he provided bread for our forefathers for 40 years. What are you going to do? Yeah, who can't feed 15,000, 20,000 people? Or can you do something better than that? And Jesus' response in verse 32 was, Jesus then said to them, Truly, I truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then the verse that we had this morning, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the illustration. God sent manna to extend physical life. God sent Jesus to offer eternal life. And in the same way that this manna that was sent down from the heavens was white, it symbolizes Jesus' sinlessness, his purity, his righteousness. In the same way that it came down from the heavens, Jesus came down from the heavens as well. 
in the same way that it was accessible, that everyone could go out and have it themselves. Jesus, too, is accessible, that you, too, can know him and have eternal life. But that's not at all that it says here about this. Look with me at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. And if you know the story of Exodus 16, you know there's a lot of grumbling. And it's a great play on words here because they're grumbling just like their forefathers did. It's as if they are saying, how is it that Jesus came down from heaven? Because we know his dad, we know his mom. They don't know the whole story, evidently, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. They are hung up by his outward appearance. Let me ask you a question. If I were to write out a check for a million dollars and present it to you, would you care at all of what kind of an envelope it came in? Imagine that envelope had a return address that says U.S. government. You would say, well, this check's going to bounce. There's no way that this thing's going to be able to sustain in a bank. But if I just provided an ordinary garden variety envelope, what does it matter what the exterior looks like? All that matters is the treasure inside. And what the people were hung up with is, this Jesus, he's a man. How is it possible that he could provide treasure for us? And then it says here in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, he said, there's some similarities here to the manna. But the manna, people would eat and they would die. I have come that they would experience life forever. And then there's some controversial verses that we're right about ready to get to. You ready for them? These are verses that are long misunderstood for generations. So let's just face them head on. Verse 52 and following. I want to remind you the main theme here is this illustration. And what the illustration is, is that as the Israelites in Exodus 16 had to take in manna to live. People need to take in Jesus to live for eternity. With that theme in mind, look at verses 52 and following. Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, church family, is he speaking here about cannibalism? Or is he speaking here of this illustration that one needs to internalize Jesus and his teachings? Of course, it's the latter. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my body is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me 
also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So what do we make of these verses? I think what we have here is what Jesus is saying is as food is so common to a human taking it in, Jesus is to be as common to us in our life as well. One commentator, a Bible preacher, James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. He says, is he, that is, is Jesus as real to you as spiritually as something that you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do you think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries? I say this because although he is obviously far more real and more useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. In the same way that we are to take in food to survive, we are to take in Jesus and his teachings to live spiritually. That is what he is saying here. We have many probably Catholic friends and neighbors that would say what this is here is this supports the teaching of transubstantiation. What these verses are really about is communion or the Lord's Supper. That is that when we take bread and we put it in our mouth, it literally transforms into the body of Jesus. Or when we take the juice or the wine, and we put it in our mouth, it literally transforms into the blood of Jesus. Let me give you three quick reasons why that cannot possibly be true. One, the whole Lord's Supper was not instituted for another couple of years. It was instituted before Jesus was arrested, crucified, and then raised from the dead. If he would have said this and he meant the Lord's Supper or communion at this moment, absolutely no one would have had any idea what he was talking about because it wasn't even unleashed yet. Let me give you the second reason. What sort of congregation is he speaking to on this day? Is he speaking to people that have open hearts, who have ears to hear, that want to know what truth is and eternal life? Absolutely not. He's speaking to hard-hearted people. Would he have any way said to them, all you really need to do is just take this body, this bread, just take this juice, just take this wine, and if you will take this, then you don't have anything to worry about. You will receive eternal life. That is not at all what he's been saying during this sermon. Let me give you a third reason. If it is true that one could take the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood, and by taking that, you could experience eternal life or fulfill that in you, then that would be a contradiction of the entire main idea of his sermon. Let me read you again what it says there in John 6, verse 47. He says, Truly, I truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, before we leave this illustration, and I think that this illustration is, is really the bulk of this message, let's just talk for a moment of how is it similar when you eat something, when you have some bread, when you have that hamburger and french fries, how is that similar to receiving Jesus? 
in your outline, I've provided five different similarities. I want us to talk through those for a moment. Number one, each of them begin with hunger. If you want to have a really good meal, then you need to have a really big appetite, right? When you are hungry and you meet that with some good food, that is a great experience. And so what we have here is there is a hunger. In a congregation in John chapter 6, evidently there were not a lot of people that were really seeking after eternal food. But there could be some people here this morning that says, you know what, that's true. I've been living my life for food that spoils. And I've seen it spoil. And I don't want to live like that anymore. I've experienced sin and much of what this world can offer, and I don't want anything else. There is a hunger within me for truth and for life. God has put that hunger within you. And there's a quest for you to find out how can that be satisfied. So it begins with a hunger. Secondly, there's a personal response. I want to take you back to Exodus 16, where that manna was laid on the ground, and each person was responsible to take and eat. It's possible a dad went and gathered manna for his whole family, or maybe for his wife, but even so, they would have been responsible to take it and eat it themselves. Let me say this about eating. It's not enough for you to know the nutritional facts about food. How many carbs are in that cup of Cheerios? Or how much sodium is in a stack of saltine crackers? It's not enough for you to know the digestive system well enough to offer three 60-minute lectures on it. It's not enough for you to know about Jesus, to know about facts about Jesus or what the Bible has to say about Jesus. You must personally take him in and believe. The table is set for you. All has been accomplished. All you must do is turn from your sins and believe that Jesus has died for your sins. And you know what? Oftentimes, God does use a crisis to awaken us and say, you know what? There is a hunger within me to seek more than what this world can offer. I really want to do. I want to seek truth. I want to seek life. The third thing I think we see here, a similarity between eating and receiving Jesus is an act of faith. As we look at food and we eat it, we're operating on faith that that is going to bring nourishment, strength, and it's going to sustain us. And as this message is going out today from John chapter 6, and the invitation is being extended for you to receive life, you do that by faith. In the same way that one internalizes food, one takes this message of Jesus forgiving sins, this gospel message, and internalizes it and applies it into their life, and it provides strength and power to live out the life he has called us to. This past weekend, as we were at the Weekend to Remember conference, uh, Melody and I were listening, particularly on Friday night, and we were hearing all these wonderful principles and and techniques to have a a great marriage. And I thought to myself, these are all really good, but as I look around this room full of people, I thought to myself, if they're not Christians, then they don't have the ability, the power to live this out. 
and how satisfactory it was to me that then the last session of that Saturday morning, they just devoted a whole time to just laying out the gospel and said that exact same thing. We've been giving you all sorts of tips and, and helps for your marriage, but you need to be a Christian before you can apply these things. And it's there where you have the power and the capability. I'll give you a fourth similarity. It's the word satisfaction. Is there anything like being just filled with hunger? Making a great meal, having steaks on the grill, and just being full and pushing yourself away from the table and say, that was good. What Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6 is that the bread that this world can offer will satisfy momentarily, but it will spoil. Only Jesus provides life that will be truly satisfactory. And then finally, there is this continual need. When we believe in Jesus, we receive eternal life. And it is a one-time event. There is a moment before that that we are on our way to hell and under the wrath of God. There's a minute after that where we are in, in a safe relationship with God and we have inherited eternal life and Jesus will keep us from that moment all the way through eternity. But having said that, that is not the only time we take in Jesus, is it? We take in Jesus through the Scriptures, through prayer, through hearing it preached to us by building our lives around who Jesus is. Would you consider for a moment with me the construction of your home? Even if you don't live in a house, but you live in an apartment, food is so central to our lives that we have a room designated merely for its preparation. We call it a kitchen. We put food in the refrigerator, in a cupboard. We have dishes so we can, and a dishwasher so we can clean it. It is so central to us that we have a very prominent room in our house called a kitchen. Not only that, but for most of us in this room, we actually have another room close to that called a dining room where we eat that food. It's just foundational. We build our lives around food, do we not? Not only the construction of our house, but how about the construction of our day? We eat meals and breakfast, lunch and dinner, and for many of us, and every time in between, right? And so this is an illustration that says we need to be feasting on Jesus continually as you would feast on food. Let me be really clear. Jesus is not a vaccine that you can get at one moment in your life and you never need to worry about hell again. Whew, got that. Jesus is also not a multivitamin supplement that you could take 30 seconds in the morning and then you can go on your day and live the way that you want. The reason that this message was so in your face to the people that heard it is because it depicts what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. It is an all-day, all-day-long affair of seeking after Jesus as you would seek after that hamburger and fries, after that bread, or whatever else you eat. So there you have the introduction. You have the main idea of the message. You have the illustration. And now let's consider the response. Let me ask you a question. How would you determine if a sermon was effective or not? Would it be if, if it kept your attention the whole time? 
Would it be if it made you laugh and made you cry in the same sermon? Or would it be that you would judge it based on the amount of people that were there the first day and came back the next week? Well, let's look what happened after this invitation was extended in verse 60 and following. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, were they truly his disciples? They were false disciples. But this sermon and this standard of this is what it really looks like to follow Jesus, in the same way that you would eat food and have dependence on food, you are to have Jesus, to feast on him and have continual contact with him. And you know what? That cleared out the congregation. It says many, it could be most. said, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, then that's just too much for me. I wanted to come I wanted to serve a Jesus that would help me with my felt needs. But this is not at all what I bargained for. I think he not only cleared out the congregation, but I suspect he cleared out the membership role at the church. No more. No more of this. And so there's this great verse here, verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, that's the twelve disciples, do you want to go as well? Now Peter often gets rammed on in church, doesn't he? but not this morning, and not John 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what, Jesus? Just because your teaching is hard, just because the demands on it are more than what we can attain, We're not leaving. We're going to continue to follow you. And we're going to continue to seek you. I think this is a great question. Whom shall we go? Jesus, if we don't follow you, then where else are we going to go? Am I going to go back to my business and and chase food that spoils? No, I I know better than that. Am I going to chase the world and, and try to seek pleasures of what the world can offer? I know that's like food that spoils. And when I go back to a church that that emphasizes sacraments, that through those sacraments, through through that, then I can experience eternal life, I know better than that. Am I going to abandon Christ and go to Islam and there I'll, I'll be under the teaching of the prophet Muhammad and try to work my way to heaven? No, where else will I go? Because Jesus, you have provided the words of eternal life. And it's in you where our hope lies. Many of us have been in church long enough 
to see people raising their hands, praising, be so enthusiastic about worship and belonging to a church. And then something happens. And they take their ball and they, and they go. And they don't go to another church. They just, they just drop out altogether. It's like, what would it take for you? What would it take for, for me? And would we not say like Peter, where else would I go? Jesus provides the words of life. Jesus is the only way. He is the only one that I will follow. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It is, it's a compelling thought that here is Peter saying, Where else are we going to go? And one of his own buddies, Judas, actually looks like a follower of Jesus, a disciple, but he is not. So I would just conclude with that again. John 6, verse 35. Look at this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the invitation. The main point of this message is you want to know truth, you want to know life. Take in Jesus into your life. As Scott comes, as the music team comes, I just want to challenge you with a few thoughts. Would you give your life to him? What does it mean to take him in? What does it mean to believe? It means to say, I want to be a follower of yours. I don't want to live for myself at all. And I would also ask the people, that maybe you're a member, maybe you're a leader within our church, does your life look like this? Where you are are taking in Jesus and he is one that has preoccupied your thoughts. You might have a very demanding job. You might have a very demanding family, a very demanding life. But the passage here is saying that Jesus is still the central point of your life as food is. And if that is not true of you, that's, if you know that, then I would say, get that right with him. And say, I want that to be true of my life. Here's the invitation. To receive him so that you would receive eternal life. And if your life is not centered on Jesus, to pray a prayer of repentance, to say, I want you to be as central to my life as food is. Would you stand with me? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the passage today. I thank you for the sermon that was preached to us today through Jesus. It was one that just challenged us right away to say, why are we really here? Why are we really seeking Jesus? Is it so we can control him to do what we want of him? Or is it truthfully to say, you are Lord, you are the Savior, you are the bread of my life And through you, I might have eternal life. I pray now for each person here that if they have not trusted you, that you would give them the faith to believe you. And for those of us who profess to be Christians, that we would be challenged by this teaching to say, is my heart gravitate towards having Jesus as the center of everything in my life? And if not, we we repent. We say, "It, it needs to be Different, would you change my heart so that Jesus has given us rightful place in my heart? In Jesus' name.
Amen.